This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 165th edition of the program. Today is October 25th, and before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to support us, and that includes Brett Fowler, Corey Thrall, Jay Deshpande, Joan Courtney, John Tunka, Josh Allen and Richard Bodo. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support, or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, first, we'll continue our coverage of voter suppression and discuss how Republicans in Kansas are now trying to suppress the vote of Latinos. Also, how Republicans in North Dakota are trying to suppress the votes of Native Americans. And we'll also discuss leaked audio from a Republican from Georgia named Brian Kemp, where he admits that he's actually afraid of just how many people might come out and exercise their right to vote. We'll pick the brains of Trump supporters that had some troubling recommendations to say the least with regard to how we should address the immigration phenomenon, and we'll look at a panel of Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz supporters and see what they have to say ahead of the November 6th election. We'll talk about the debate between Ron DeSantis and Andrew Gillum. Chuck Schumer is bungling his party's chance to win the messaging war, specifically when it comes to the issue of healthcare. Right-wing political commentator Jesse Lee Peterson had a warning for Canadians that are excited about their country's legalization of recreational marijuana. He says it's a killer, literally. Comcast is crying over California's net neutrality law, claiming that they'll actually make less money because of said law. And we'll also talk about the clash between witches and exorcists over Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. And no, I'm not making this up. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's show. I hope you guys enjoy the program. Let's go ahead and jump into the first story. We've been talking a lot recently about voter suppression efforts by Republicans across the country and how these voter suppression efforts, be it voter ID laws, uh, voter roll purges, they specifically target people of color. And no, that's not an unforeseen consequence. It's a feature of this effort, because if you're a Republican and you're cognizant of the fact that voters of color tend to vote Democrat more often than not, and you don't necessarily know whether or not a white person would vote for a Democrat or Republican, then the way that you eliminate the most votes against you is simply by targeting communities of color. That's what's happening in the state of Georgia, as Secretary of State Brian Kemp put more than 50,000 voter registrations on hold in order to make sure that his Democratic opponent, Stacey Abrams, doesn't win. And let me remind you that of the 50,000 voters that are on hold, the overwhelming majority of them are, in fact, voters of color. Now, we're seeing the same thing happen in the state of Nevada as well. And we have another example of that in the state of Kansas. And 
the details here are incredibly blatant. I mean, they couldn't even come up with an excuse to make it seem as if what they're doing is not trying to suppress the vote of people of color. So getting to the details here, as Roxana Hedgman of the Wichita Eagle reports, iconic Dodge City moves its only polling place outside town. Now, this is suspicious given the details of this election and the demographics of Dodge City. And according to Real Clear Politics, the state's gubernatorial race is a complete toss-up at this point. And with Republican Chris Kobach and Democrat Laura Kelly polling within the margin of error, it's super close, right? So that means every single vote is going to matter. And Dodge City is important here because this is a city that's majority minority voters with 60% of the population being Hispanic. And given that Hispanic voters are more likely to vote for Democrats over Republicans, the race could literally come down to voters in this particular city. But one of the reasons why these voters haven't necessarily had the biggest impact in the past is because, as Hedgman explains, the city is located 160 miles west of Wichita, and it has only one polling site for its 27,000 residents. So voting in this district is already incredibly difficult as voters are required to wait more than an hour on average in this particular area. Now, it's no surprise that they're having to wait a minimum of an hour to vote because, quote, that single polling site services more than 13,000 voters in the Dodge City area compared to an average of 1,200 voters per polling site at other locations, said Micah Kubik, executive director of the ACLU in Kansas. Now, the impact of having just one polling place in this city is having a demonstrable impact on voter turnout, and it is lowering the turnout of Hispanic voters. Quote, a Democratic Party database compiled from state voter data shows Hispanic turnout during non-presidential elections is just 17% compared to 61% turnout for white voters in Ford County in 2014. Dodge City's turnout is below the national turnout rate of 27% among Latino-eligible voters in 2014, which in itself was a record low that year for the country, according to the Pew Research Center. So in a city where Hispanic voters could potentially tip the scales of really close elections in favor of Democrats, their voices have been hindered by a lack of polling places needed to accommodate the demand for voters who actually want to make their voices heard. But knowing that having just one polling place might not necessarily stop these voters from voting altogether, what are Republicans doing now? They're just removing that polling place from the town altogether. And as Hedgeman reports, for this November's election, local officials have moved it outside the city limits to a facility more than a mile from the nearest bus stop, citing road construction that blocked the previous site. And this is a phenomenon that's been happening across the country. Kansas is not the only state that has closed polling sites. Polling places across the country have also been shuttered since the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013 struck down parts of the Voting Rights Act. A 2016 research report from the Civil Rights Coalition Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights found local officials had shuttered 868 polling places in the three years after the court's ruling. So let's just take a moment to reflect on all of these details here. We have a city that has majority minority voters. 
it was already difficult for these individuals to cast their votes because there was one polling place. And as a result of having only one polling place, turnout was well below the national average. But knowing that even that wasn't enough to stop these Hispanic people from voting, they just removed that polling place altogether, knowing that that could very well determine who wins and loses, seeing that this race is so close. This is one of the most blatantly undemocratic things that is going on in this country. And Republicans, they're not even being subtle anymore about their desire to suppress the vote. They're openly advocating to suppress the vote. They're concocting conspiracies about voter fraud and how rampant that is, which is just pure propaganda. And their goal is very clear. Suppress the vote, beat the Democrat. And if it is the case that we don't see a gigantic blue wave on November 6th, we know that it's going to, in part, be due to disgusting election rigging from Republicans. Now, in the event the Democratic gubernatorial candidate in this race, Laura Kelly, wanted to actually file a complaint and take this issue up with the Kansas Secretary of State, well, the problem is that the current Secretary of State happens to be none other than her Republican opponent, Chris Kobach. So there's really no recourse for her in this instance, which is the same situation we're seeing in the state of Georgia, where Stacey Abrams is running against a Republican gubernatorial candidate who also happens to be their Secretary of State. So as Secretary of State, Chris Kobach in this instance is able to impose restrictions on voting in order to advance his own political career. And as Secretary of State, he hasn't even been very subtle about his vote suppression agenda, and he actually has lobbied the Trump administration in an attempt to convince them to gut voting rights even more so than they already have. He also led President Trump's so-called voter fraud commission after Donald Trump fabricated a myth about millions of people voting illegally in the 2016 election. And when it comes to this phenomenon of voter fraud, the reason why people are freaking out about this is because Republicans are peddling propaganda. In fact, Donald Trump is encouraging these types of voter suppression efforts. He recently tweeted out, quote, all levels of government and law enforcement are watching carefully for voter fraud, including during early voting. Cheat at your own peril. Violators will be subject to maximum penalties, both civil and criminal. Now, this is just pure projection. Notice how he's talking about the other side cheating. But he's not going to acknowledge the fact that what he's doing and Republicans across the country are doing, it's tantamount to cheating. They're trying to rig elections across the country by suppressing the vote because they're afraid that in these really close races, they might lose because these people of color might come out to vote and determine who wins or loses. So they're trying to stop that. Now, when it comes to this phenomenon that is voter fraud, just how rampant is it specifically? Well, as Sammy Edge and Sean Holstage of NBC News explains, a study of 2,068 alleged election fraud cases in 50 states between 2000 and 2012 found that the level of fraud was infinitesimal compared with the 146 million voters registered over the 12-year period. The analysis found only 10 cases of voter impersonation, the only kind of fraud that could be prevented by voter ID at the polls. In further analysis conducted this year, News 21 reviewed cases in Arizona, Ohio, 
Ohio, Georgia, Texas, and Kansas, where politicians have expressed concern about voter fraud and found hundreds of allegations but few prosecutions between 2012 and 2016. Attorneys general in those states successfully prosecuted 38 cases, though other cases may have been litigated at the county level. At least one-third of those cases involved non-voters, such as elections officials or volunteers. None of the cases prosecuted was for voter impersonation. Now, ask yourself this question. If you are a secretary of state in a red state, do you honestly think you're going to be ignorant to studies like this? If it's your job to maintain the integrity of the vote, do you not think he'd be privy to this type of data? Of course, they know about this. They know how rare voter fraud is, but they know exactly what they're doing. They are targeting communities of color. They're suppressing those votes, purging them from the rolls, not accepting new voters, moving polling stations out of their communities, all to make sure that they win, to win by cheating. And they have the audacity to accuse voters of cheating and committing fraud. These are the frauds right here. These Republicans are afraid of democracy. They're undemocratic. And as a result, in order to advance their own career, they're violating the voting rights of these people across the country. This should be a national outrage. And to the mainstream media's credit, they are talking about this story, but this should be something that everyone is screaming from the rooftops about. Because if we're going to live in a democracy, we have to make sure that suffrage is universal. It's bad enough that we already don't allow felons to vote. But people who are eligible to vote are having their voices suppressed by Republicans who would rather cheat than win legitimately because they're afraid of voters. I mean, this is absolutely disgusting. And this isn't going to be the last story you hear about this because these instances of voter suppression, cases are popping up across the country. It's it's, it's really disturbing, and we have to do what we can to sound the alarms, because this is very serious. This is a literal threat to democracy. If this doesn't threaten democracy, then nothing does. On last week's show, we talked about the gubernatorial race that's currently taking place in the state of Georgia between progressive Stacey Abrams and Republican Brian Kemp. Now, for a bright red state like Georgia, Stacey Abrams is surprisingly polling exceptionally well, and she's been consistently about two points behind Kemp, but the most recent poll shows that these two candidates have now tied. Now, because this race is so close, and since, theoretically speaking, this should never happen in a red state, every single vote is definitely going to matter. And part of the reason why Stacey Abrams is performing so well and surging is because she has a very comprehensive get-out-the-vote campaign. Her goal is to expand the electorate in the state of Georgia, and she's already registered thousands of new voters in that state. But... The problem is Brian Kemp sees this, and as Secretary of State, he's using his power to suppress those votes. And because he's afraid of democracy, he decided to put more than 50,000 voter registrations on hold, 70% of which are African American and overwhelmingly likely to vote for Abrams over him. Now, if you are Secretary of State, it is your duty to uphold the integrity of elections, but instead, what Brian Kemp is doing, since he's afraid of democracy and is afraid that all these new voters are going to ultimately 
tip the race in Stacey Abrams' favor is he's using his position as Secretary of State to suppress their votes and advance his own political career. Now, why do we know that he is concerned with all these new voters that are signing up to vote because of Stacey Abrams? Well, because he said this in a closed-door meeting with donors, there's leaked audio that came out from Rolling Stone that exposes him for the undemocratic fraud that he is because in this audio, he's going to admit that he's concerned with voters exercising their right to vote. And as worried as we were going into the start of early voting with the literally tens of millions of dollars that they are putting behind to get out the vote efforts for their base, a lot of that with absentee ballot requests, they have just an unprecedented number of that, which is something that continues to concern us, especially if everybody uh, uses and exercises their right to vote, which they absolutely can, and mails those ballots in. We got to have heavy turnout to offset that. That is very telling. And you don't even have to read between the lines here. He's very explicit. He states, it continues to concern us, especially if everybody uses and exercises their right to vote. So understand that he's expressing concern about people exercising the right to vote specifically because it might hurt his electoral chances on November 6th. But if you're a rational person who has integrity, what do you do? If you see that, if you see that your opponent is surging in part because she is signing up thousands of new voters, well, logically, the response would be that you sign up Republican voters. You register new Republicans to vote. But instead, what does he do? He puts more than 50,000 registrations on hold to make sure that all those new voters can't vote. All the work that Stacey Abrams is doing, the grassroots campaign, is stifled by him unilaterally saying, mm, you know, these are suspicious. Let's wait. Let's put these on hold, maybe until after the election. I mean, he is literally trying to rig this election before our very eyes, and he's not even trying to be inconspicuous. He is openly suppressing the votes of his opponent. As she signs up new voters, he suppresses those voters, makes it so that way they can't even vote. So understand that Republicans, they're about reducing the size of the electorate because the fewer people that turn out to vote, the better it is for them. But when it comes to Democrats, every single campaign is a get-out-the-vote campaign. I mean, a Democratic candidate's success will hinge ultimately on how many voters they get out to vote. This is a go-to strategy for people who actually want to win. And Stacey Abrams is doing exactly what she should be doing. And what's happening? He's cheating. He's trying to rig the election by using his power as, uh, as Secretary of State to suppress the vote. This is disgusting. You see, the problem with individuals like Brian Kemp is they're hostile towards democracy, and openly so. But here's the thing, Brian. We live in a representative republic where our votes should count. And if you don't like that, why don't you go ahead and move to an authoritarian regime where votes don't matter? Move to Saudi Arabia. Move to North Korea. If you want to be a politician where votes don't matter, where election rigging is commonplace, then move to one of those countries. But here in America, votes shouldn't matter. And as Secretary of State, if you truly want to uphold the integrity of your state's elections, he should be making the barriers to vote 
smaller. He should be doing everything he can to expand the electorate himself. And even if that hurts him, well, tough. We live in a democracy. If you don't like the fact that black voters don't vote for Republicans, then maybe stop fucking them over. I don't know. Maybe start proposing policies that would appeal to them. Maybe do something to bring them over to your side. But no, instead, they uh, they choose to cheat and erase the voices of those voters. If he wins, with it being this close, it will specifically be because he cheated. In 2016, Americans across the country watched in horror as Native American protesters in the state of North Dakota were absolutely brutalized while they tried to prevent the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And in 2018, some of those same people who had their sovereignty violated are now having their voting rights stripped away in an arbitrary scheme by Republican lawmakers to suppress their vote in that state. Now, one Native woman who's also a congressional candidate, her name is Deb Holland, she decided to tell their story and elevate their voice because this is incredibly important. She writes, On October 9th, our U.S. Supreme Court green-lighted voter suppression of Native Americans in North Dakota in a move that should outrage all of us. It comes just two short years after the Native American environmental movement skyrocketed into the national spotlight through the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline on the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation. Now, those same water protectors are under attack again as the Pueblo Indian woman, I traveled to North Dakota and stood with the water protectors to protect land and water. Now, I support them and Native Americans across North Dakota as they organize to keep their right to vote during a contentious election year. Voter suppression is as old as America and the latest move by conservatives aligned with wealthy special interests is to suppress votes with voter ID laws. The North Dakota law specifically requires IDs to have a street address. Many Indian reservations do not have street addresses and under this law, a P.O. box is not considered a valid address. Conservative lawmakers attempt to steal the votes of thousands of Native Americans made vulnerable by this unjust law happened weeks ahead of the most important election year in my lifetime. The Supreme Court's decision to uphold this blatantly unfair law is disenfranchising of one of the most underrepresented groups of people in our country. As a country, we should be moving forward, but instead, conservative lawmakers keep dragging us back. As an organizer in the most underrepresented communities in my state, I have felt the frustration that so many voters must feel when other states limit polling locations, require photo IDs, and put unnecessary barriers in front of voters. In this case, targeting Native American voters is shameful and wrong. So this is an incredibly powerful story, and I'm thankful that Deb decided to share this story and elevate the voices of Standing Rock sue uh, tribe members i'm gonna put a link to her campaign down below please feel free to support her she is progressive she supports medicare for all she stands up for native american rights and sovereignty she is a crucial voice that we need to have in congress so look even though it seems as if standing rock sue um is maybe one of the most oppressed tribes in the country, their story is going to be relatively similar to other Native communities because throughout our history, the American government has treated them like garbage. 
They get sovereignty. They have their own sovereignty. What happens? We violate that when corporate interests mandate that we have to put a pipeline through their land. If they turn out to vote and will likely vote against conservative lawmakers, we suppress the vote. We require these arbitrary voter ID laws when if you live on a reservation, you don't have an address. And even having a P.O. box will not satisfy their requirements. I mean, look, it's very, very clear what Republicans are doing. This is all done intentionally and purposefully. They know what they're doing when they enact these draconian voter ID laws. They are trying to pass this off as, you know, just a practical thing. Who doesn't have a photo ID? And maybe that's true for you. But in historically underrepresented, marginalized communities, in poor communities, in native communities, they don't have a picture ID. So, I mean, this is a blatant attempt to suppress the votes of people who won't vote for them. These are laws specifically designed to target people of color. And again, I said this last week too, so I sound like a broken record because I repeat myself, but I think it's really important. You don't have to take my word for it. You can think that I'm just a liberal cuck, you know, um, <laughs> and that's fine. But look at the court ruling that determined that voter ID laws target black voters. Well, they don't just target black voters across the country. They target all voters of color. And it's not just like, you know, these voter ID laws are the only thing that Republicans are doing. As she stated in the article, they're also moving polling stations, moving them out of towns where voting is already an issue. And, you know, there's already a high demand for voting, but you have one or in some cases two voting places, uh, polling places if you're lucky. So it, it's just, it's disgusting. It's so demoralizing to see that even if you come with a better message than Republicans, if you're a progressive like her, you're running for Congress and you have the better superior message, you still might not win because of voter suppression laws. You could be like Stacey Abrams in Georgia and know that if you want to win in a red state like Georgia, you've got to expand the electorate. And then what happens? Their Republican secretary of state puts those new voter registrations on hold. Could be like the state of Kansas, where in a city where the majority of voters are Hispanic, you take the only polling place that they had and you move it out of the city and make it even more difficult. So what little voters participated in the election aren't able to participate. Republicans are cheaters. We need to call it like we see it. They're cheaters and they're trying to rig elections across the country because they're afraid of democracy. If 100% of Americans came out and voted, do you know what would happen? Republicans would probably never win anything ever again. So they know that when voters turn out, Democrats win and Republicans lose. And they're afraid of the fact that you know, as more people of color sign up to vote, that threatens their chances. So what do they do? They cheat. They try to suppress the vote. They're cowards. If you want to win, you don't have to suppress the vote. Come up with a message, Republicans, that would appeal to voters of color. But instead, they just continue to implement policies and push for policies that specifically hurts these communities. It's just, this is so frustrating because... In order to get out of this dismal political situation that we're in, Republicans have to lose. But they're winning in large part thanks to these voter suppression laws. It was a problem in 2016, it was a problem in 2014, and it's going to continue to be a problem unless we take action. But even if we take action, if Congress passes a law 
we have a conservative majority on the Supreme Court that struck down the Voting Rights Act in 2013. And that majority is probably going to be on the court for decades. So any new law that we propose, they're going to invalidate it. I mean, it feels like a lose-lose situation here. So we need to share these stories and get the word out that these Republicans are cheaters and they're trying to rig elections because they're against democracy. So lately, there's been a lot of commotion when it comes to the caravan that is headed here from Honduras. Now, if you are Donald Trump, if you're one of his supporters, then you don't even care about hearing these individuals out. You just want to blanket reject them and not allow them to enter the country. This is essentially what Donald Trump has been advocating for. Now, let me remind you that under U.S. law, individuals seeking refugee status they can actually go to U.S. legal ports of entry in order to seek asylum. But what Donald Trump is advocating for, and what he's getting a lot of Republicans to buy into, is that these individuals, they pose a threat to the United States, and no, they should not be allowed to enter the country. Now, I don't even have to get into all of the conspiracy theories around this particular issue, right? Because if you're watching Fox News or listening to Donald Trump, then... There's this absurd idea that Middle Easterners and potentially members of ISIS infiltrated this caravan. That makes no sense whatsoever because if you're actually headed towards a U.S. legal port of entry, then you have to make your case. And I think that we determine pretty quickly whether or not someone is seeking asylum for legitimate or illegitimate reasons. Now, look, here's the thing about this. Being a country comprised of immigrants... It's only right to at least give them the opportunity to make their case, to just hear them out at a minimum. But American political discourse with regard to immigration has gotten so toxic that even stating that is a controversial opinion. So since Donald Trump has been desperately trying to make this a campaign issue, a lot of Republicans are talking about this caravan of immigrants uh, coming from Honduras. And let me remind you, a lot of these people are fleeing violence. They're seeking a better life for themselves, and they're hoping that the United States will give them a chance. But that doesn't matter to Donald Trump or his sycophantic cultist supporters. And Emma Vigeland of Rebel HQ has been attending Donald Trump rallies across the country, and she was recently in the state of Arizona, and she spoke with Donald Trump supporters about what they would do uh, to ameliorate the immigration situation or just in general to, to get their thoughts on it. And what they said about this issue was downright disturbing. So Tucker Carlson had this segment that went viral where he said that the changing demographics with more and more Latina people coming into the country, it's causing more volatility in the country. What are your thoughts on that? Build the wall. I think if they were Republican voters, they'd be stopped. <laughs> Uh, the the Latinas at the border? Yeah, I think. Um, and I, I think um, 4,000 Latinas coming in uh, less than a month before the midterm elections. It didn't just happen. It wasn't a grassroots overnight decision. I mean, it took some, uh, you know, it took some planning and, and somebody's behind it. What would solve the whole thing in the border if they would just start shooting? Only shoot a couple and they would go home. You think deterrence would work? If they would shoot. 
I really feel like if the people from Mexico would come here and emerge into the American culture, but they really, I see it, they want to make America part of Mexico. And I'm opposed to that. So I don't honestly even know where to begin, so we'll just get to <laughs> the obvious use of, you know, uh, conspiracy theories. I think that some of these insane um, theories that they are concocting, maybe it came from Fox News, maybe it, you know, came from their own minds, but this is what one lady says. I think that if they were Republican voters, they'd be stopped. Okay? And she also says 4,000 Latinas coming in less than a month before the elections, it wasn't a grassroots overnight decision. It took some planning and somebody's behind it. In other words, we all know who she's talking about. It's George Soros. He's behind it. He wants Democrats to win. So what he's doing is he's trying to get immigrants from Honduras to come into the United States, flood the country and vote in elections across the country in order to make sure that Republicans lose. Well, if you just think slightly about the logistics of this theory for a second, <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't it be easier for Democrats, if they really wanted to win, to just expand the electorate here in the United States? Do what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did in the 14th Congressional District of New York and try to register new voters? Why would you go out of your way to bring in people from a different country in order to vote and win elections here? Isn't that a strategy that will end up making them lose since that's obviously more difficult than just signing up new voters here. I mean, there's no logic to what they're thinking. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just, mm, it's bad. I don't like it. So it must be that somebody's behind it. And I'm just going to assume George Soros because he's behind every protest ever and anything that I don't like in the country. Now, the question is, what specifically would give her this idea that undocumented immigrants are even allowed to vote in the first place? Because obviously they're not allowed to vote. All right, it's actually the president of the United States who put this idea in voters' heads when he falsely claimed that millions voted illegally in the 2016 election because his ego couldn't accept the fact that he lost the popular vote. Now, even if Donald Trump didn't specifically say that undocumented immigrants are allowed to vote, well, if you read that tweet and you're a Donald Trump supporter and he's talking about voter fraud then you can extrapolate based on that and assume, well, you know, since these people are coming here and since people of color overwhelmingly are more likely to vote Democrat, then it must be the case that these individuals are coming here specifically to flood elections and vote Democrat and tip the scales in favor of Democrats. But one, they can't vote. They're not citizens. And two, that strategy, again, is more difficult than actually registering new voters in your own state or county. Now, we get to the individual who said the most disturbing thing ever. He said, what would solve the whole thing at the border if they just start shooting? Only shoot a couple and they would go home. Now, I don't think it's unreasonable to also assume that this individual is against abortion and he would likely consider himself part of the pro-life movement. He's a Donald Trump supporter. By and large, they're going to be against abortion and self-identify as pro-life. Why do all of these pro-life people keep contradicting themselves? We saw Michael Knowles at Politicon claim that he's pro-life, but when Kalkalinsky pressed him on the death penalty, 
He said, I love the death penalty. I'm so pro-life, so you know, I'm against the death penalty. I love the death penalty. So you're not pro-life. So you're not pro-life. So you're not pro-life. I love the death penalty. So you're not pro-life. We see Ben Shapiro talking about how pro-life he is when it comes to abortion, but advocating for wars that kill hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. And now we see someone who is presumably pro-life advocating for us to kill immigrants. To kill them extrajudicially, mind you. Don't even hear them out. Don't give them due process. Just kill them right there. That's what these individuals advocate for. They have no human empathy whatsoever. They only care about stopping immigrants at all costs. So the means justify the ends for these people. And one person said they want to make America part of Mexico, and I'm opposed to that. Now, I honestly don't even know what that means. Are you honestly suggesting that these people who are coming from Honduras want to have Mexico annex a portion of the United States? First of all, how would that work? Why would they have to send people here to annex portions of our country first? Wouldn't they just do it? And second of all, logistically speaking, how would this work? From a military standpoint, why would Mexico want to go up against the United States who has the strongest military in the world? When you compare Mexico's military to the United States military, there's no comparison. Mexico... Their military would be the size of an ant, and ours would be the size of Shaq, a giant. So it doesn't make any sense. These are people who I feel like they're just too far gone. There's no logic. I mean, if you try to present them with facts, if you try to present them with an argument, it doesn't matter because they're too far gone. They don't live in the world of facts and reality. They live in a world of feelings. Now, there's some example for this uh, theory that I have that they put feelings over facts, because Emma Viglin also talked to them about President Trump's approval rating among black voters only sitting at 3%, and it was clear based on their reactions that these Trump voters overwhelmingly put feelings over facts. Right now, the latest poll shows that Trump's approval rating among African Americans is at 3%. Why do you think that is? Fake news. Fake news, the polling? Sure. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of people here. I've seen African American people. People no, that's anecdotal evidence. That's not the totality. It's not worth even answering her questions. I don't think that's real. I mean, they can say what they want. They also said Trump wouldn't win the election. And he did. But that polling was wrong around the margins. It was still correct on the national level. Really? Okay. Let's laugh. You guys, I mean, it's just facts. Okay. All right, next question. Why is it not facts? Did you say 3%? 3%. I didn't want to talk to you. You're, you're a joke. You're a serious joke. All right, next question. Next question. Three? Yeah. Three? three. No, that's it's not right. like 18%. Where'd you get that? It was an ABC News poll. Oh, well, of course. Three no, percent. It's gone up. Way. It's more like 25%. The Clinton News Network is why I think that is. I, I, don't, I highly doubt it's at 3%. That, that just doesn't even sound right. It's like I could tell you more than 3% just here in Arizona. 3%? I'm looking at Fox all the time. It's like 35%. Uh, that's close to the national average, so that's there's no way that's true. I, I think, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, th I think that's a lot better than we think, and there's a lot of hidden folks that don't want to come out. Now, um, Emma asked the first guy why he believes Trump's approval rating among African Americans is at three percent, and his answer was fake news. <laughs> it's that's it, you know, it's that simple.
I don't like it, so it must be fake news. I'm honestly not sure if he thinks the poll itself is fake or if the poll is real and black voters just simply disapprove of Donald Trump at higher numbers because of fake news, I don't know. But at least at the end of his conversation with Emma, he kind of conceded. But the guy on the left of her was so triggered, he personally attacked Emma and called her a joke. I mean, is this not the definition of snowflakeism? She presented him with a fact, she said something that offended him, and he got outraged, and he personally attacked her, called her a joke. I mean, these people are unreal. This is why I say that Donald Trump supporters are in the MAGA cult. It's because they're simply following Donald Trump for purposes of following Donald Trump. I mean, certainly some people probably were drawn to his anti-establishment appeal, but by and large, a lot of these Republican voters who are just sycophantic Trump supporters... It's a cold. They don't even care. If you say something that penetrates that bubble that they're living in, they're going to not just be offended by that. They may even lash out and personally attack you, as that individual did there. Now, there was another group of female Trump supporters that just laughed in Emma's face when she told them that the poll came from ABC News, and they just inserted their own percentage and said, well, it's more like 25%. In other words, we feel like that poll is wrong. We feel like it should probably just be like 25%. So that's what it is. I mean, imagine <laughs> being so arrogant that you just insert whatever your feelings are and uh, into the conversation and you treat them as if they're facts. Let me try it. So I feel as if support for Medicare for all should be around 90, 95%. So I'm just going to start saying that. Now, I love how these same people probably didn't disregard ABC News polls back in 2015 and 2016 when they showed Trump leading the Republican field during the primaries. But all of a sudden, now that the poll is producing results that they don't like, well, they're calling into question its accuracy. Now, look, is it acceptable to question the methodology of polls? Of course it is. I think I do it myself. But they don't have a nuanced, reasonable, and thorough take on what's problematic about this poll. In fact, Emma didn't give them the specifics. She just cited the results and they rejected it. No, this poll is it's false. It's inaccurate. It's fake news. It's ABC News. Oh, well, that's why it's wrong. Well, what specifically do you not like about ABC polls and their methodology? Do you think that their sample sizes are too low? Do you think that the wording of their questions biases the results? Do you think that the sample is not representative of actual voting demographics? What specifically do you not like about this poll? Be nuanced and explain it, but it's, it's not about nuance. It's not about the technicalities of polls. It's about their feelings. And one individual, the last guy that you saw there, I believe said, um, well, maybe one of the factors with black voters and why they didn't want to vocalize their support for Donald Trump was because they didn't want to, quote, come out. In other words, when pollsters poll black voters, they're too afraid to say whether or not they support Donald Trump. Now, in certain instances, is it the case that the pollster and what the respondent perceives to be the correct answer, could that bias the results? 
I mean, sure, that's certainly a possibility. I was a research assistant for a professor who did polling in the Middle East and North Africa. She did polling in uh, Tunisia, Algeria, even Libya for one poll, which was fascinating. And what we were genuinely concerned with here was when it came to questions of religion and secularism, would respondents answer based on the perceived level of religiosity of the person conducting the poll. So, for example, if someone was being asked about secularism, would they be more comfortable answering truthfully if the person who's asking them the question was perceived to be secular? Or, conversely, if someone was wearing a hijab and appeared to be religious, would they feel more inclined to answer in a more religious manner. I mean, that's certainly something that's important. But in the United States, is this going to be a factor? No, it's not going to be a factor. And I'm being extra kind and even trying to explain this to them, not as if, you know, it's going to change their mind or matter. It's all about their feelings. They feel like this poll can't possibly be accurate because I like Donald Trump, so how could a black person not like Donald Trump? So they just insert what they think the poll number should be. It's unreal, and it just, it really is demoralizing to see this, and shout out to Emma Viglin because she's doing the Lord's work here, but how can we possibly win over these types of voters? How can we when you can't reason with them using facts and data and statistics? You just can't. So how do we win them over? The answer is we can't. We just have to register to vote and overwhelm them at the polls, sign up new voters, get millennials interested in voting. And part of that falls on the responsibility of the Democratic Party in trying to excite their base. But by and large, you you can't win over these types of voters. The guy talking about shooting immigrants, he's a lost cause. The woman who believes that these people are coming from Honduras to vote in our 2018 midterm elections, you can't win them over. I think that's becoming increasingly clear as we hear from some of these Donald Trump supporters. Now, is it the case that every single Donald Trump supporter is a lost cause? No, not necessarily. I don't believe that. But the problem is, I think what liberals and progressives are trying to do is present counter-arguments that rely on facts when these people, they don't operate on facts. They fundamentally operate on emotion and feelings. It's kind of depressing uh, because these people are just, they're too far gone. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. They may seem a little bit harsh, but it, it's, it's true. Vice News put together a panel of 16 voters in Texas, eight of which were Ted Cruz supporters and the other eight were Beto O'Rourke supporters. And the results were just fascinating. So the first part that I want to get to is kind of a humorous bit where the host said, what's one word that comes to mind when Ted Cruz comes up? And the panelists did not disappoint. Give me a word or phrase to describe Ted Cruz. Divisive. Constitutional. Arrogant. Committed. Douchebag. Principled. Unproductive. Unlikable. Steadfast. Smarmy. Competent. Hypocrite. Slimy. Christian. <laughs> <laughs> that was absolutely savage. 
absolutely savage. Uh, we got douche, douchebag, unlikable, smarmy, hypocrite, slimy. And when the guy at the end there said Christian, they laughed in his face. That was just glorious. I think that they were absolutely correct about their characterization of Ted Cruz. Couldn't agree more. I've called him, I think, all of those things. Um, so to hear voters echo the same sentiment about Ted Cruz, um, yeah, it's it's nice to see that. Now, basically, they were talking in this next clip that you're going to see here about their general problems with both of the candidates. And you'll see that when the topic of immigration came up, Things took a turn for the stupid real quick. I have fundamental issues with Cruz because we're creating trillion dollar, over trillion dollar deficits, but now it's okay. Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, they may raise more money than any campaign in the history of America. Why is this so important? Why is so much money flowing into this state? I think the Democrats are trying to prove to the country that they can turn a bright red state blue. All that Ted Cruz has done is try to repeal health care 40-something times and failed each time, and by the way. And then he, he and ran for president. And then, and then he missed half of the votes while he's been there. And what has he done? What major piece of legislation has he ever done? I, so I'm a Beto voter. I will be. And the reason for that is, is because of the polarization right now. I don't agree with all of his policies. Absolutely don't. But I don't, I, I disagree with all of Cruz's policies. I disagree with the wall. I disagree with all of that. And I guarantee you as a mother of two boys that I would do everything illegal, legal. It doesn't matter what it is to get my children into this country. Is there a problem with that? Yes. 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 You would let somebody rape your child. Sovereign countries that have laws. Obey those laws. You go to other countries, you can't just walk in and do anything you want in their country. Why do we demonize the people that get lured here by business owners that have jobs waiting for them? Why don't we do mandatory prison time for anybody that hires an illegal alien? Fine. Mandatory fine. federal We're okay time. With that. Or at least do fine. Good. Stop Big luring fine. them here and then you demonize fine. the people. Yeah, this this is, about is America. Yeah. You come in but here. You come in here legally. My parents and my grandparents were immigrants. They worked hard. They adopted and they came into this country legally. Voting based on emotion, you got to base it on facts. What are the facts? America is like a lifeboat. And at a certain point, if you bring everybody into the lifeboat, the lifeboat sinks. We have American children that are starving. How many kids do you know that go to school every day and then they also bring a backpack home on the weekend where the churches have provided food for are American children. So definitely some interesting anecdotes there. We have one guy saying, I have a problem with Ted Cruz because we've created over a trillion dollar deficits, but now that's okay. Obviously pointing to the hypocrisy. And really, I don't, I don't know how Republicans, like their own voters, don't see this because if there's any party that's ever concerned about the deficit, both parties do it, but it's always disproportionately Republicans. In fact, they claim to be the party of balancing the budget. But what happens? Well, we get a Democratic president in Bill Clinton. He balances the budget, creates a surplus. We have um, Barack Obama gets in, cuts the deficit after it was exploded by George W. Bush. So they still claim, in spite of all of that, that they're the party that is, you know, they're, they're deficit hawks. 
But that's so fundamentally untrue. It's demonstrably untrue. They just exploded the deficit. So how can you still believe that? So I like that this voter actually, is seemingly, if he's, a, he's, if he's a Republican voter, is aware of this hypocrisy. Also, one guy noted that Ted Cruz tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act 47 times, missed half the votes, and hasn't had any noteworthy legislative accomplishments. Yeah, he is a political opportunist, and he really is a good-for-nothing politician. So I like I like that as well. I'm in complete agreement. Now, one woman tried to empathize with immigrants and said that if you know she was in their shoes, she'd be doing everything in her power, legal or illegal, to get them to the United States to make sure that they have a better life. And when the host asked other panelists to respond to that, they clearly took issue with it. And then one lady responded by saying, you would let somebody rape your child. What? Now, when that woman reacted to that stupidity, I mean, her reaction was all of our reactions. It was that idiotic. You would let somebody rape your child. Dum, 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 dum. Clearly, she cares about her children. She's saying she'd do anything to ensure that her kids have a better life. And that's what these immigrants from Central America are doing. They're trying to get to the country um, and they're showing up to legal ports of entry, by the way, to apply for uh, refugee status or seek asylum. And they're doing this because they're fleeing violence. They're trying to protect their kids. But what does that person say? Oh, you'd let somebody rape your kids. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's just, it's so laughable. Now, she also went on to make another anti-immigrant point saying, look, how are we supposed to feed these immigrants if we can't even feed our own children? Right. And you think people like Ted Cruz care about taking care of our children? I mean, the Republican Party refused to reauthorize funding for the children's health insurance plan. So you think that they're going to be the ones that actually care about children after they just were using them as political pawns at the beginning of the year, lady? Really? You believe that? And look, I would be fine with that point if that lady said, look, we need to take care of our children by doing policies X, Y, and Z. But if you notice, these people, they'll make that point. They'll say, well, no, we, we, we can't feed other people's children. We have to focus on feeding our own first and focus on American children. But they never go the extra mile and say, here's what we should do to make sure that our children are fed. They just bring up that point and then run away from it. They're just using it as a ploy to make an anti-immigrant argument, but they don't want to follow through on actually feeding American children. I'd respect what you're saying if you actually advocated for policies that help Americans, like the Children's Health Insurance Program, like Universal Pre-K, but they, they don't advocate for these policies. They don't. They're just using our children as a political ploy in the same way that Republicans do in order to speak out against immigrants. Now, speaking of immigrants, the issue got to, um, the topic rather, got to what we do about the 12 million people currently in the country. And here's what happened. All right, show of hands. Who wants to build a wall? Raise your hands. Who is opposed to a wall? Raise your hands. Just like America, split 50-50. Why not a wall? All of the people who voted to build the wall and the people who want illegal immigrants deported are the same people who want lower taxes, but tax money is exactly where that budget to build the wall is gonna come from. Here's how you pay for the wall. 12 million illegal immigrants. You put them on a modified path to citizenship, a new visa, and every year you have to pay $1,000 to maintain that visa, 
okay? If you have 12 million people paying $1,000 for the next, 20, next 10 years, that's $120 billion that you just generated. What's wrong with that? Well, because they're making $8, $10 an hour, and they're barely feeding their children. Undocumented worker should pay $1,000 a year because they are here. I don't know about 1000 but a path is a path. I, I agree that there should be some sort of path. There's no way you're going to get rid of 12 million people that are sitting here contributing to our society, helping us grow, making us more diverse, all things that we want. Should there be a path to citizenship? I'm Hispanic and I don't think so. And I'll tell you why, because there should be a consequence to them entering illegal. So there should not be a path to citizenship. Maybe consider uh, giving them status to stay here legally, but not impact the platform for either Democrat or Republican. You are taking a position that is different from a majority of your community. Back in the day, even if you weren't, maybe in the 70s, 80s, if you were illegal and you got deported, you grabbed your family and went home. I love my family. I still have family in Mexico. So, and I've seen it growing up here in Texas. Were you born here? Friends, I was born here in Dallas. What about your parents? My parents were born in Mexico. Did they come here legally? Uh, actually, that's a good question. I haven't asked them. Uh, you had $10,000 on the line. Did both your parents come here legally? Thinking about it, probably not. And I would still stick to my views because I was born in this great country that believes in the rule of law. And they come from a country that even though they have laws on the book, which is Mexico, they almost are not followed through. Who's going to win this race? Ted Cruz. Who thinks Ted Cruz? Raise your hands. And he th- who thinks Beto O'Rourke? So where are my Beto voters who think that Cruz is going to win? Explain why. That's a red state. We're conservative. Beto is the, the challenge. And unfortunately, Texas is a, you know, doesn't really do a lot of change. And just like me, you know, before the Kavanaugh thing, I probably wasn't going to vote, but this Kavanaugh thing is going to turn out a lot of people. What is it about what happened that is now making you a voter? I think he was treated very unfairly. But why would that cause you to vote? Because I think they they did him totally wrong. So that to me was really interesting because you had some of Ted Cruz's supporters express support for amnesty. You had, you know, a Beto O'Rourke supporter expressed support for a pathway towards citizenship. Then one guy admitted really what you're not supposed to admit. Let them stay, but don't give them citizenship because they'll vote and thus impact elections. Uh, yeah, you're, you're not really supposed to admit this. <laughs> It'd be as if, you know, a Republican secretary of state in Kansas, Chris Kobach, for example, said, I don't want Latinos to vote because that means that I'm going to lose my election. Like, these are things you're supposed to keep on the down low and not admit, but I mean, he, he just went out and said it. I mean, we all know it, right? It's uh, not a very well-kept secret. It's kind of an open secret, if you will. And he just said it. No, we shouldn't make them citizens because then they'd vote for Democrats and Republicans would lose. Why not just try to appeal to them rather than, than uh, not allowing them to become citizens? I mean, the thought of appealing to people of color and uh, getting them to vote for you is absurd to Republicans. Now, here's the most ridiculous part of that clip. So the same person who just said this admitted that his parents probably came to the country illegally, but yet he's against other people doing the same thing. So, you know, in other words, fuck you, I got mine, 
It doesn't matter that I came here as a result of illegal immigration, but other people who do the same thing, they're bad and I'm good. And he really displayed his ignorance here because he implied that America is superior to Mexico because we actually believe in the rule of law here and Mexico doesn't even follow their own laws. Right, and there's a number of reasons why that's the case. Mexico is a very new democracy. They don't have the institutions needed to solidify their laws and legitimize them. There's rampant corruption when it comes to police officers and judges that are being bribed by criminals. I mean, the country is riddled with famine and poverty and crime. But if others try to, you know, flee the country for the same reasons that his parents probably did, they're bad people. But for some reason, he's he's not a bad person and his parents aren't bad people. I mean, what a selfish person to think this way, to lack empathy. What a selfish individual you are. You should be ashamed of yourself. You are a hypocrite. How could you, someone who benefited probably from illegal immigration, be against other people doing the same thing when you know firsthand that they're coming here to better themselves, to flee violence, to flee famine and poverty. Unbelievable. Now, the lady who originally made the comment about, you want your children to be raped, just the, the crazy person, um, she made another really absurd thing, uh, absurd point. She said uh, she wasn't originally planning on even voting until she saw how unfairly, unfairly, Brett Kavanaugh was treated. Now, I, I, I've heard this somewhere. Oh, that's right. It's the exact same thing that Donald Trump said. He was treated unfairly. So sad. Look, this is clearly a Donald Trump Kool-Aid drinker. She's a sycophant. She's a mega cultist. And whatever Daddy Trump says, that's gospel. We've got to run with it. So if Republicans like Trump say, well, with how fairly Kavanaugh was treated, this is making our voters want to come out and vote. She's like, oh, okay, yes, I, I want to come out and vote because they said that we want to come out and vote because of the Kavanaugh kerfuffle. I mean, <laughs> these people are, I mean, some of them are just too far gone. I don't think that all of the Ted Cruz voters in this panel are too far gone, but I mean, some of them are just, they're too far gone, but this was nonetheless fascinating. I'll link you to the full clip down below because I didn't show you all of it, but certainly it's really interesting to get these anecdotes and kind of pick the brains of voters for a race that's so high profile and frankly, really important. If we could defeat Ted Cruz, I would be over the moon, even if it's someone like Beto O'Rourke, who isn't necessarily the most exciting candidate ever. Better than most corporate Democrats, not as good as, you know, your average progressive like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But nonetheless, if he beats Ted Cruz, I will be a huge Beto O'Rourke fan. I think we all will. So, as you all know, there's been a number of really high-profile gubernatorial races taking place across the country. And last week, you know, as we get closer and closer to the November 6th midterm elections, there's been a lot of debates that also took place. And last week in particular, we had Beto O'Rourke face off against Ted Cruz. But one that I really wanted to focus on was the debate for the gubernatorial race in Florida between Republican Ron DeSantis and 
Andrew Gillum. Now, when it comes to Andrew Gillum, he's become a relatively controversial figure to some progressives because after being endorsed by Bernie Sanders, he quickly started to conspicuously move away from the rhetoric that he was espousing on the campaign trail. So, for example, he stopped talking about Medicare for All. He started openly accepting more money from billionaires like George Soros and Tom Steyer. And additionally, he started having individuals like Hillary Clinton and even Debbie Wasserman Schultz stump for him. And look, I don't have to tell you why that's problematic. That obviously is going to turn off a lot of your progressive base that you just won over during the primary. So needless to say, he's disappointed a lot of people within the progressive community, and I think that those feelings are justified. But with that being said... This isn't a Hillary versus Trump situation where, you know, it's lose-lose and no matter who wins, voters are going to be in pretty bad shape. And I'll admit that Andrew Gillum is definitely not as progressive as someone like Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren. I kind of view him as more of a Beto O'Rourke slash Sherrod Brown type of Democrat. But let's be clear, disappointment aside, Andrew Gillum is no Hillary Clinton. He actually wants to legalize marijuana. He wants criminal justice reform. He's refusing private prison industry money. He'd likely sign a net neutrality bill into law in the event it came to his desk. He actually wants to do something about climate change, which is especially important for voters in the state of Florida. So this isn't like, you know, you're choosing between Hillary and Donald Trump. Essentially, you're choosing between Donald Trump and Sherrod Brown. And a Sherrod Brown type of progressive is much more preferable to someone like Donald Trump. Now, Ron DeSantis is a lot like Donald Trump. In fact, he's been very open about his association and similarities to Donald Trump. And he even released an ad that I made fun of him for, where he basically just talked about how much he loved to smell Donald Trump's farts. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. I love that part. He's teaching Madison to talk. Make America great again. People say Ron's all Trump, but he is so much more. Big league. So good. Now, if he wins, he would undoubtedly be a disaster. He doesn't want to expand Medicaid, which is the bare minimum you can do as governor to expand access to health care in your state. He doesn't really believe in climate change. He literally made racist comments about his opponent the day after he won his primary. So, I mean, you kind of got everything you needed to know about Ron DeSantis pretty quickly. But the good news is that Andrew Gillum is actually polling ahead of Ron DeSantis when you look at aggregate polls data from the state, but it's still relatively close, so you still gotta work hard, but odds are we have a really, really good chance at defeating this type of Trumpian figure that has become all too common in the era of Donald Trump. Now, in this debate between Ron DeSantis and Andrew Gillum, we saw something really fascinating. For all of the loudmouth bloviating and flexing that we often see from Trumpian Republicans like Ron DeSantis, well, he didn't look so tough during this debate. And that was because Andrew Gillum was not fucking around at all. He pulled no punches, and he hit Ron DeSantis, and he hit him hard. So regardless of how disappointed you may or may not feel, he is creating an outline as to how Democrats should perform during debates, because what he did here, for the most part, was really fantastic. So I've got a couple of clips to demonstrate how he just annihilated 
uh, Ron DeSantis, and I have one clip to where I was kind of disappointed in him, but for the most part, he's creating this template that Democrats have got to follow, where you just keep them on the defensive, and you keep hitting, hitting him with all these different attacks that he can barely respond to. So, the first topic was related to gun control, and DeSantis was asked why he claimed he would have vetoed a piece of gun control legislation that Governor Rick Scott actually signed into law. And he gave the standard vacuous response we've come to expect from Republicans. But what was really great was how Andrew Gillum responded. The congressman was against the piece of legislation because he is wholly owned uh, by the NRA. Uh, he's not going to stand up to the National Rifle Association. That's why they're running all these ads against me, uh, because they want the man that they bought. Uh, in my case, we're prepared to stand up to the NRA. They sued me. They drug me through court for two years, all because we said we would not allow guns to be shot in a city park. Radical that you cannot shoot guns in a park where our kids play and our families picnic. That's why uh, people are so incensed by this, that because common sense and decency seem not to be able to prevail in this conversation. Well, I think the, the problem that Andrew has, though, is that his record as mayor is one providing over a city that's out of control in terms of crime. Uh, you know, when you have the record number of murders, in fact, the guy running to succeed him as mayor uh, was his former chief of staff, and he's sending out literature to voters saying, most murders in history last year, something needs to change. That's right. Andrew couldn't keep Tallahassee safe. He's not the guy to keep Florida family safe. All right. Well, Ron is being Don, uh, and that's Donald Trump, uh, neglecting all sense of reason and facts. Uh, I preside over a city that is experiencing a five-year low in our crime rate on trajectory to be at a 20-year low in our crime rate. No, no matter of restatement of what he has to say is going to change the facts. This is CNN, not Fox. You have to bring facts to the conversation. Record number and of murders case, last year, yes or and no? And in our case, we are the eighth largest city and our 27th in crime. This Did is what, Florida, this is what Florida voters understand. What Florida voters understand is that communities will experience crime. Just in Jacksonville earlier today, six people shot. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And what I'm going to do is take on the NRA and hold them responsible for the rampant crime in our community. I want to ask that right there is how you do it. You hit him and you hit him hard. And what Andrew Gillum did was exactly what he needed to do to demonstrate why it's the case that Ron DeSantis wouldn't act when it comes to gun control legislation, even the most moderate and sensible gun control legislation. It's because he's a bought and paid for shill by the NRA. And as Andrew was hammering him, you could literally see on, De on DeSantis's face just how nervous he was. I mean, he was fidgety. He wasn't sure how to act. He was clearly anxious. All because we said we would not allow guns to be shot in a city park. Radical. I don't think I've ever seen a candidate that visibly disturbed on stage by what his opponent was saying. That was just brilliant. And in part, I don't necessarily think that this is only because Andrew Gillum is such a skilled debater, because he is, but I also think it's because Ron DeSantis is such a weak debater. Now, in this next clip, Ron DeSantis was called out for dog whistle racism because you're going to hear about all the things he's been saying throughout the course of this campaign, particularly after Andrew Gillum won. And what he's going to try to do is change the narrative. Instead of him being racist, he's going to say Andrew Gillum is actually anti-Semitic because he signed a pledge of this group that advocates for BDS of Israel, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And that is anti-Semitic. Now, Watch what Andrew Gillum does to change the narrative back 
to Ron DeSantis and get the heat off of him and onto Ron DeSantis is just masterful here. One of your donors called President Obama the N-word. Uh, you denounced his comments, but you did not return the money. Uh, the morning after your primary win, you said Florida voters shouldn't, quote, monkey this up by electing Mayor Gillum. You insisted your comments had nothing to do with race. But what do you say to Florida voters who have concerns about your keeping the money from that contributor, your comments, and about your tolerance? Because he made a mistake, he apologized. Um, here's the deal. Uh, you know, you look at my record, uh, whether it's in the military, when we're downrange in Iraq, it didn't matter your race. We all wore the same uniform. We all had that American flag patch on our arm, and that was end of story. You look at me as a prosecutor working with law enforcement. It didn't matter the race of the victim. We were there to support the race of the victim. So Floridians can know that I'll be a governor for all Floridians. That's the only way you can do it. It doesn't mean we're going to agree on every issue, but you know what? If we disagree tomorrow, maybe two weeks later, we'll find some common ground. So that is what I believe. And here's the thing. Uh, I look at what Andrew has done in terms of aligning himself with groups like the Dream Defenders, who one of their, he stood on the debate stage, said he stood with them, he stood by them. But one of their main planks of their platform is to boycott, divest, and sanction the state of Israel. Uh, they want to they say Israel is a genocidal apartheid state. They attack law enforcement and the police. So that it to me is very divisive. I don't think he should assign that Dream Defenders pledge. I think he should disavow them uh, because I can tell you this. If you want to unify Florida, uh, taking positions about Israel like that, uh, that may be unifying if you're running for the mayor of the Gaza Strip. It ain't unifying here. We're a pro-Israel state and we need to do that. Mr. Mr. Mayor. Well, let me just simply say my relationship with Israel is beyond reproach. I'm the mayor of a city that has a sister city relationship in Israel uh, with the city of Ramah Sharon. I've been to Israel three times and I've had rabbis from my community come to my defense in this regard. Uh, that was a clever attempt to get away from the fact that Mr. DeSantis himself used to moderate a Zeno Xenophobic, racist Facebook page. Oh, that is not he is, true. It is, in fact, that the truth up until See, you became the, the Republican nominee. Let's just do one at a time. I'll, when I'll, you became we'll the Republican you. nominee, your response was, I don't even do social media. Uh, that was after you got caught. Uh, you've spoken at so, conferences you, where there have been so, racist Jay, and xenophobic speakers. On the Facebook stuff, you can get added to these things without consent. I never consented to anything. Yes, you can. Okay. I never consented to anything. Once we found out about it, I just discontinued my Facebook thing. He mentions this conference. There was nothing wrong with that conference. I can tell you this. The keynote speaker at that conference was a Medal of Honor recipient mm -hmm. named Clint Romache. Um, and so you can impugn his integrity like you're trying to do mine. Uh, you've not served, the, you've not worn the uniform. You don't know what sacrifice that takes. That man is an American hero. And I was proud to speak at the same conference that he spoke at. Mr. Mayor. Again, uh, the, the Congressman let us know exactly uh, where he was going to take this race the day after he won the nomination. The monkey up comment said it all. And he has only continued in the course of his campaign to draw all the attention he can uh, to the color of my skin. And the truth is, is you know what, I'm black. I've been black all my life. So far as I know, I will die black. Uh, but this is the point. The, the, the only color that the people of the state of Florida care about is the blue-green algae flowing out of the east and the west side of this state. And they deserve a governor who is going to protect this environment after 20 years of, of environmental protection. Uh, uh, now, what we saw from Ron DeSantis was the typical go-to Republican Party debate tactics. And what he wanted to do was reframe the debate from his racism to Andrew Gillum's anti-Semitism. But Andrew Gillum was not having that at all, and he immediately put Ron DeSantis back on the defensive. And before I get to Andrew's response, real quick, I want to point out what DeSantis said. 
He uh, says that this group's platform says, quote, Israel is a genocidal apartheid state. Yeah, <laughs> he says it as if objectively speaking, that's not the case. When if you look at facts and you look at what they're doing, you look at the way that they behave. I don't know how you can draw any other conclusion away from that. So he says it as if it's just absurd. No, it's not absurd. Your position is absurd. Now, getting to um, Andrew's response, that's where he comes in. And not only did he point out that what DeSantis was using was a debate tactic, he noted that DeSantis was trying to deflect. And he says, quote, that it was a clever attempt to get away from the fact that Mr. DeSantis himself used to moderate a xenophobic racist Facebook page. And then to kind of round things off, Andrew brought it all back to policy and talked about the environmental degradation that has been allowed under Republican administrations. Now I've got another clip where Andrew Gillum really shined. So Ron DeSantis, was asked about climate change and he was kind of tap dancing around the issue or around his answer and this is the way he's behaved before i mean the way that jake tapper framed the question was don't voters have a reason or have a right to know where you stand on climate change and he, he just did the same tap dance but watch how andrew gillum responded you recently said that you're not a climate change believer i'm sorry you're not a climate change denier but you don't want to be labeled a believer in climate change Given the threats Florida faces from intense hurricanes and rising sea levels, don't Florida voters deserve to know where you stand on this issue? Well, what I said was I don't want to be an alarmist. I mean, I want to look at this and do what makes sense for Florida. So, for example, for the people in northwest Florida, I will be there for you. You guys are resilient. Uh, you're fighting. This was a terrible storm, uh, and we will rebuild. Um, but I also think you have to just look at facts. The fact is, you look at South Florida, we need to do resiliency. You have more water. You have flooding. Uh, so as governor, that's something that I'm going to take on full throttle. What I don't want to do is do what things like Andrew wants to do, which is do a California-style energy policy that will cause our electricity rates to skyrocket 20 30%. That's going to hurt senior citizens on a fixed income. That'll hurt our blue collar workers. Uh, so let's deal with the issues that we can deal with. Uh, I'm somebody who has a plan to fix, uh, to stop the toxic algae uh, that's been spewing into our rivers, to divert that south of the lake, restore the Everglades, and restore Florida Bay. We can get that done. I think I'm the candidate uh, that can get that done. Um, and I think now's the time to do it. Because if we don't take action over the next four years, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to restore the Everglades to their rightful place. Mayor Gillum. Well, first, uh, what Florida voters need to know is that when they elect me governor, they're going to have a governor who believes in science, uh, which we haven't had for quite some time in this state. Uh, I'm not sure what is so California about believing that the state of Florida ought to lead in solar energy. Uh, we're known as a sunshine state. Uh, at the very least, what we can do is be a global leader here. We got to teach the other 49 states of what to do and what it means to have a state uh, that, quite frankly, leans into the challenges of the green economy and builds one and at the same time builds an economy uh, that lasts. I'm proud that the same week that Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord, I broke ground in my city on a 120-acre solar farm, tripling the amount of solar energy that we produce. Uh, we're prepared to lead, and we've uh, done so in my city, and we'll do so for the state. So in my opinion, Andrew Gillum's answer there was perfect and when he came through I mean Ron DeSantis didn't really even take any shots at Gillum there um, and it didn't matter Andrew still came through hit him hard and that's what you have to do and the way that Andrew Gillum spoke about climate change was really important and I think that it would behoove other Democrats to talk about climate change in the way that he's talking about it because how did 
Ron DeSantis characterized the situation. Well, look, what Democrats want to do to, you know, um, ameliorate climate change is they want increased taxes, you know, economic issues that would result from their policies. But no, what this is about is investing in clean, renewable, green technology. And Andrew talked about this. He talked about the economic opportunity climate change presents their state with. I mean, they're the sunshine state. How could you not want to invest in an economic industry that could make you a world leader. It doesn't make sense. So I really feel as though this is the perfect way you have to reframe the climate change debate. Don't let Republicans monopolize this debate and fearmonger about you raising taxes. This is really an economic opportunity. And Bernie Sanders, thankfully, does talk about it in this way as well. Now, I do want to get to one more clip, and this is part of the performance for Andrew Gillum where I'm going to be more critical because I think he absolutely appeared weak here. He appeared to run away from his values. And quite frankly, um, he, he was not strong at rebutting the propaganda that Ron DeSantis was espousing with regard to Medicare for All. Andrew's for this concept, Medicare for All, which is a euphemism. Because if you read it, it actually abolishes Medicare for seniors. It abolishes Medicare Advantage. It abolishes TRICARE. And as a veteran, I know that military families depend on it. If you get your insurance through your employer, it abolishes that. And it dumps all those people against their will, regardless of if they want to stay in their current plans, it dumps them on a single-payer government system. Taxes will go through the roof, will obviously face fiscal difficulties, it will hemorrhage money, and then the government will choose who gets the care and who doesn't. Floridians should have their care protected. Seniors should be able to stay with Medicare Advantage. They should be able to stay with Medicare. If you get it through your employer, you should be able to keep it. Well, again, uh, and I expect we'll hear a lot of this revisionist uh, uh, commentary in history this evening from Mr. DeSantis. Uh, But in fact, what we're proposing to do is to take six billion dollars of money that ought to be coming to the state of Florida and to bring that money here to the state. Listen, there are Democrats and Republicans, folks on both sides of the aisle who believe that this is the right thing to do. Uh, uh, Mr. DeSantis, while in Congress, voted uh, to discriminate and allow insurance companies to discriminate against people based off of pre-existing conditions. Let's, if let's, you're a cancer patient, if you have diabetes, if you wanna, are a pregnant woman right in the state of Florida, that is a pre-existing condition. It's disqualifying. De- Congressman DeSantis. So Ron DeSantis said Medicare for all, uh, Gillum's Medicare for all plan would, quote, abolish Medicare for seniors, abolish Medicare Advantage. It abolishes TRICARE. If you get your insurance through your employer, it, abol- it abolishes that. This is the most easy thing that you can debunk. Because the opposite is true. If you are a senior on Medicare, you want everyone to get Medicare. Because if we have Medicare for all, we expand Medicare, we improve Medicare, and then that makes Medicare better for everyone, right? Because seniors who currently are on it, well, under Medicare for all, they would get uh, dental, they get vision, uh, their hearing aids, the cost of those would be covered. But he's lying. He's saying, oh, well, you know, this would abolish Medicare Advantage and TRICARE. You don't need those if everyone already has health care. What's the point of keeping Medicare Advantage if everyone has Medicare? See how disingenuous he is? And he also said that um, if you get your insurance through your employer, it abolishes that. So first of all, the underlying implication about that is if you currently have insurance, you're going to lose insurance. And as a result, you may lose your doctor. But if we have Medicare for all, if we have a single payer type system, that doesn't change you know, your doctor, it changes who pays your medical bills. It'd be the government funded by your tax dollars. Now, 
if you are someone who likes the insurance that you get through your employer, then you would have a security blanket through Medicare for All. It still benefits you because what happens if you have health care, health insurance in particular, and you lose your job? You also lose your health care. So what people need is stability when it comes to health care. They can't be losing insurance, gaining insurance with the new jobs. We just need everyone to be covered. If you're sick, you get care. And it's as simple as that. So Ron DeSantis is brazenly lying here. But the thing that really bothered me about Andrew Gillum's response is he was obviously doing everything he could to avoid saying the words Medicare for all. For example, he said what he's proposing is he wants to accept the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion. Okay, that's that's certainly great. That would expand access to hundreds of thousands of Floridians. Still not the same as the universal coverage that would be, you know, the goal with Medicare for All. But it was very, very clear he was doing everything he could to not explicitly endorse Medicare for all. And that's because you can tell based on his rhetoric that he's moved away from that since he actually won the nomination. Now, at this point, when you have someone like Ron DeSantis hitting that hard against Medicare for all when um, he's been on the defensive most of the time, and also judging by Andrew Gillum's responses to other answers and how hard he hit there, for him to not pounce on DeSantis here with this blatant bullshit, you can tell that was deliberate. He didn't want to talk about Medicare for all. So, um, you know, it, that point was definitely disappointing. Um, the most disappointing point specifically of the debate. But by and large, when you kind of step back and look at Andrew Gillum's overall debate performance, he performed exceptionally well. And I think that he's really creating a template, generally speaking, right, for most portions of this debate as to how you refute Republican Party propaganda. You just hit him over and over and over again to where he is not able to even defend all of those points because you're hitting him with so many different attacks over and over. And that's exactly what Andrew Gillum did there. And it was just masterful. So by and large, to say that I'm not disappointed in Andrew Gillum would just be lying. I think we could be objective and acknowledge as progressives He's moving away from rhetoric that he talked about during the primaries. And that's disappointing. But at the same time, in a race between a Trumpian Republican, um, or in a race against, rather, a Trumpian Republican, he's no Hillary Clinton. I think that we have to be realistic here. He's no Hillary Clinton. I mean, Andrew Gillum would obviously do lots of good things for the state of Florida, in spite of the fact that I don't like that he's trying to run away from Medicare for All. And look, that's not to say that he's not going to pursue a state universal healthcare initiative. I mean, when he was first elected, he said that he would come together with other governors and try to figure out a plan to get to uh, Medicare for All or a universal coverage. I mean, it makes more sense to talk about state healthcare in terms of universal instead of single payer, since that's more of a federal thing. But I mean, he, he said that he wants to do that. So hopefully he's going to fulfill that promise. But referring specifically to the debate here, uh, his performance was outstanding. In the spirit of Halloween, I've got a story for you where the world of politics collides with the world of witchcraft, wizardry, and the occult. And this story stems from the confirmation process of now Justice Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And no, I'm not making this up. So a coven of witches based in Brooklyn, New York, recently announced that they'd be putting a curse on Justice Brett 
Kavanaugh. And surprisingly, this story has actually gained a lot of coverage nationally, including on Fox News. A coven of self-described witches in New York is planning a rally next week to put a hex on Justice Kavanaugh. You can buy a ticket to attend this hexing ceremony for 10 bucks. The quarter of that goes to Planned Parenthood to help them continue to fund their human sacrifice rituals. Now that's just one example, but this has also been covered on CBS, RT, among other news outlets. And the witch who's leading the cause actually uh, appeared on Fox News because, I mean, why wouldn't he? And he explained in great detail specifically what their aim is and how they're going to curse Brett Kavanaugh. A coven of witches is gathering in Brooklyn as we speak to place a hex on Justice Kavanaugh in hopes that evil will come his way. Earlier, I spoke with Dakota Bracciale, who is the leader of this occult group. All right, so Dakota, you're a witch. Yeah. And you are going to use witchcraft mm -hmm. against Justice Kavanaugh. Yep. What is the ritual that you are undertaking? Well, like uh, traditionally in witchcraft, we don't share, uh, most people don't share the exact particulars of the ritual. Can you um, give me a hint? Well, there will be effigies, photos, um, graveyard dirt, coffin nails, open flames, the whole bit. Whoa, whoa. So yeah. will an effigy of Kavanaugh be burned by the witches? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And a picture of Kavanaugh will be burned? Yes. What will you be doing with the graveyard dirt? Uh, so that goes in a uh, container spell, um, which is basically when you take a jar, fill it with ingredients, uh, seal it, and then burn candles on it. And it's like a continuing spell that you can then re-up on any time. Is there a cauldron involved? Yeah, that's where the fire will be. Okay. Yeah. And has these things worked in the past, these hexes? Yeah, we feel like they have. How um, have you proven that they've worked? So... And who else have you hexed? Well, we hexed Trump last summer. Uh, we did three cumulative rituals. Uh, so there was one in June, one in July, one in August. Uh, and since then, a lot has come out. I mean, the, the hex, the, so a lot of people take it as like hexing is to like make that person die or like do something horrible to them. Uh, but it all really depends specifically on like what you're trying to do, right? And that's all in the wording and all in the intention. For us, it's about exposing these people because we believe that they are uh, fundamentally dishonest and fundamentally um, unethical. And so we want that to be exposed. So that was interesting. And, you know, that guy is not necessarily um, what I think of when witch comes to mind. But, you know, that's cool. And part of me thinks that he's trolling. But there's also a video that's like an hour long of him actually conducting a curse on Red Kavanaugh. So maybe he is authentic. I don't know. This story is very, <laughs> very interesting to me. So I do want to get to um, what he said here and the response to this, which is probably my favorite part. So um, when he was describing the ritual itself, he just kind of described it in a matter of fact way. So Water said, so Dakota, you're a witch and uh, you're going to use witchcraft against Justice Kavanaugh. And the response was, yep, mm -hmm, yep, that's what we are precisely going to be doing. We'll be uh, cursing him. I, I mean, it was just, it was funny because this is something that is, um, it's odd, right? So to see it discussed in mainstream media in such a flippant way is is really um, 
I found it interesting and certainly entertaining to say the least, but regardless of how serious you might take this, there is a portion of conservatives who were genuinely concerned about this coven's attempt to curse Brett Kavanaugh. Now, you don't have to look far to find examples. If you just go to the comment section of that video posted on Fox News, you see one individual states, I pray that all the hexes, him and his witch buddies cast, shall be cancelled in Jesus' name, and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and may they find Jesus and true happiness. That's really nice. Uh, another one says, May Jesus Christ open his eyes to the truth and may God have mercy on his soul. And then another one says, This guy and <laughs> this guy and those <laughs> This guy and those like him need Jesus Christ more than anything. <laughs> it honestly does not take much to um to to send the right into just full-on panic. Um, now, the story escalated a little bit when a Catholic exorcist decided to jump into the mix, and as Carol Caruvilla of HuffPost reports, Catholic exorcist prays for Brett Kavanaugh in response to witches' planned hex, and explains the Reverend Gary Thomas is a Vatican-educated exorcist who is currently authorized by the Bishop of San Jose to perform exorcisms. In Catholicism, this complex set of rites and prayers is used only by specifically trained priests to battle with perceived demonic forces. For Thomas, the news that dozens of witches would assemble at an occult bookstore in Brooklyn to target Kavanaugh is no joke. The priest said he's witnessed people who weren't in in a state of grace experience real physical and spiritual harm as a result of curses. So to kind of recap the story thus far, we have witches, a coven of witches, basically come together to formulate this hex that they will put on Brett Kavanaugh, and then in response we see a Catholic exorcist try to counter that um, by praying and basically doing what he can to ameliorate the worst effects of said curse. So in essence, after reading this story and gathering as much information as I possibly can on this, the state of American politics in 2018 can essentially be summarized with the following clip from South Park. Oh, goodness, what's going on? Stand back, mother. We're having a telekinetic battle of men. I've been waiting so long to use that clip, and finally, I have the, the literal perfect segment to use that clip in. <laughs> so, um, you know, look. Laugh all you want at the situation, you can laugh at these witches, but in all honesty, um, it seems as if this coven of witches based out of Brooklyn is doing more than Chuck Schumer and some Democrats to resist Donald Trump and Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> because, I mean, think about this. Chuck Schumer, when you have someone as problematic as Brett Kavanaugh, who is likely going to be confirmed to the Supreme Court, you have a good legal and policy argument against him, and then you have this window of opportunity where he proves that he's a liar after these charges of, um, or these allegations of sexual misconduct come out, you have another window of opportunity to really act and 
show to everyone that this guy proved that he's a liar. He is a perjurer. He contradicted himself. He stated lies. But, I mean, he didn't capitalize on this situation. And even if he did, you know, capitalize on this to the fullest extent, I'm not saying that it's a guarantee that Chuck Schumer could have prevented um, him from getting through because, I mean, the numbers just weren't on their side. But with that being said, um, you know, everyone's doing their part, you know, to help with the cause, including the witches. So shout out to the witches. Um, if this is something that makes them happy, then I absolutely do not begrudge them, you know, for, for doing this. If, if being a witch makes them happy and, um, partaking in this makes them happy and shout out to, you know, anyone else who is, uh, is, you know, into unorthodox hobbies, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone, I am, I don't have any problems with it. Um, so yeah, this story was absolutely fascinating to me and I couldn't not talk about it. One, given that I had that clip that I was itching to use and two, seeing that it's, it's the perfect season to talk about that. Halloween is uh, coming up very soon. So how could I not talk about this on the Humanist Report podcast? <laughs> We're now just days out from the November 6th midterm elections, and regardless of how enthusiastic you may or may not feel about the Democratic Party, we have to acknowledge that it's very important that they take back at least one chamber of Congress, so that way we can just end one-party rule in D.C., because currently, Republicans are in control of every single branch of government. I don't have to tell that to you or explain it to you, and that's incredibly problematic, so if Democrats can just be successful enough to take back the House, which seems relatively likely, then they can stop the worst parts of Donald Trump and the Republicans' agenda from getting through. Now, the question really that we're all asking ourselves is, what are the odds that Democrats will be successful and actually take back the Senate? And I think that it doesn't look good because even back in 2016, we saw that the electoral map just it wasn't in their favor going into the next midterm election. So it's certainly an uphill battle, but in the event Democrats are able to pull out a victory and take back the Senate, I think it's easy to see that it will be in spite of Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer because he was recently on MSNBC on a panel um, for the show Morning Joe, and it's very clear that he still doesn't know how to lead the party and he's been handed so many gifts and opportunities to get the word out about what the Democratic Party stands for. And he's just utterly clueless as to how to get the message across. So we're going to play this clip and then I'm going to explain why he's wrong and where he's kind of on the right track, but still falls short at the end of the day. We've been asking, what's a Democrat's message? What's going on? Very... Because there are a lot of depressed Democrats right now post-Kavanaugh. What is your message in this hour of power to get them up okay. out of the pews and contribute <laughs> to American democracy? Preach! Amen. Okay. Now, our very simple, first and foremost, better health care at lower costs. It's the number one issue in America. That's what Donald Trump Everyone promised. says, yeah, except he's raising the costs and the people know it. What they agree with Democrats. And let me just say Donald this, Trump? but one thing, Mitch McConnell gave us a gift in the last three days. He showed who the Republican Party really is. Day one, cut Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. Day two, 
remove 30 million people from health care. Day three, join a lawsuit that gets rid of pre-existing conditions. Health care, you know, so my mother me, used to me, tell me to when someone right shows there. you who they are, Believe, believe him. him. And that's a game changer. What so, McConnell did in the last three days is a game changer so no, so for number us. Number one, he talked, he, he talked about cutting entitlements. Uh, and and then I want to go to number three, though, the, because the president's saying Republicans will always support pre-existing conditions. Yeah. Republicans are all running around scared, saying, oh, we all support pre-existing conditions. Just uh, let's not put too, too fine of a brush on this. That's just a blatant lie. Explain exactly. to people that are watching why the that's president, a lie. I said to the president yesterday, not personally, but, you know, yeah. Twitter, um, if you really believe it, drop your lawsuit. Right now, the president has a lawsuit that will cause pre-existing conditions to go away. Nineteen Republican attorneys general joined it, including two running for the Senate. They are so scared that they are being hammered on this lawsuit. They say, well, I'm really for it. If you're really for it, get off the GD lawsuit. Willie. Well, the other thing you've raised is the, the deficit, the debt and deficit, which Republicans and conservatives have preached about for generations, as you know. Blowing a hole through the debt, blowing a hole through the deficit is going to be a trillion dollars maybe <laughs> yeah. by next year. Right. And yet there's this tax cut that only adds to that. It's the old trick. Is there something in there for Democrats to hit Absolutely. And have they been doing that effectively? Yes. You know, we are, we, this election is neck and neck. And I, as I said, McConnell gave us a gift. That's a game changer when he shows who he is and wants to really hurt people Should on health Should it be neck and neck? Hmm? Shouldn't Democrats be ahead by like 20 I mean, points well, after you know, Donald Trump I'm talking in the Senate. In the House, it's not neck and neck, but we had a tough map. You know, a yeah. year ago, if I came on the show and would have said it's neck and neck, you'd say forget about it. And what we have found in states where we thought we'd be way behind, we're neck and neck. In states that where we thought it would be neck and neck, we're way ahead. We're doing much better than anyone thinks in a very, very tough map. So when it comes to the Democratic Party's message, he brings up health care. And that's that's great. I think that if you're going to focus on anything, focusing on health care, which is extremely important to Americans, is something you want to focus on. But his messaging, um, it leaves a lot to be desired, to say the least, because he states their message is better health care at lower costs. Now, as one of the panels panelists pointed out, that's exactly what Donald Trump promised. So by saying we're going to deliver you with better health care at lower costs, you're not really saying much of anything. You're not. You're just not. And what is so frustrating to me is at a time when public opinion polling is showing that 70% of the country, including a majority of Republicans, supports Medicare for all, he is presented with this opportunity to really monopolize messaging when it comes to health care. And that's what he goes with. Better health care at lower costs. What does that even mean, Chuck? What does that even mean? How are you going to improve healthcare while simultaneously reducing costs if you won't even specifically say that you support something like a public option at a minimum? I mean, if you're the Senate majority or minority leader, if you're the leader of Democrats in the Senate, it's on you to make sure that Democrats have a cohesive message with regard to health care, because he sa he stated himself, he knows that people are concerned with health care. It's the number one issue for a lot of Americans. So if that's the case, then wouldn't the first thing you do as leader is get all Democrats on board with one message? Instead, we don't know where Democrats stand. 
So if you look at Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, there's 16 or 17 Democrats or so who co-sponsored that bill. So there's a portion of Senate Democrats that support Medicare for All, but there's also another portion that supports moving to a public option. And then there's another group of Democrats who don't want to do anything. They simply just want to defend the Affordable Care Act. Okay, your caucus in the Senate, Chuck, is fractured on this issue. And if you know how important this issue is, then you are doing a disservice to voters to not sit them all down and say, what's the message going to be on health care? Even if he said, we're all going to come out and support a public option, I would disagree with that. I mean, it's a step in the right direction, but really the goal is Medicare for all, but at least you'd have some sort of cohesive message, but he has nothing. And it just, it boggles my mind. How can you be this incompetent if you are the leader of a party? Now, look, when it comes to Medicare for all, it is the case that Democrats are slowly but surely improving when it comes to the House. There was an article in USA Today that states that nearly half of Democrats in House races across the country actually do support Medicare for All. And additionally, more than half of Democratic Party incumbents in the House have co-sponsored H.R. 676, which is the Medicare for All bill. But when it comes to the Senate, it's hard to tell what Democrat is in favor of which policy regarding health care. And if he was really smart, if he really wanted Democrats to win, he would be encouraging all Senate Democrats to be shouting from the rooftops that they are the party of Medicare for all and a vote for Democrats is a vote for Medicare for all. But ironically, it seems like Republicans have done more to forward this message and idea really that Democrats support Medicare for all and Republicans are doing it for all the wrong reasons, right? Because they're trying to fear but if you look at Trump's op-ed in USA Today, he implied that all Democrats support Medicare for all. So if Americans think that Senate Democrats, most Senate Democrats support Medicare for all, it's going to be in spite of Chuck Schumer's efforts and in large part due to Republicans. So there's really this, this lack of cohesiveness with regard to their messaging when it comes to health care. And as leader of the Democrats in the Senate, it's on you to put forward a clear message when it comes to healthcare, especially knowing how important it is. I mean, you, you said how important it is, but he, he's not doing that. And it's, it's so frustrating. Chuck Schumer is precisely the wrong person to lead the Democratic Party at this really important time. Now, Chuck Schumer is kind of on the right track when it comes to other issues he wants to hit Republicans for because he states, correctly so, that Mitch McConnell is proposing cuts to Medicare and Social Security. And he said that him doing that was a game changer. And he also touched on the lawsuit by Donald Trump's administration to overturn the Affordable Care Act's ban on discrimination against patients with pre-existing conditions. And he noted that he called President Trump out on Twitter over this and told him that if he really wanted to protect patients with pre-existing conditions, he just dropped the lawsuit altogether. And to his credit, I don't think that's a bad strategy. I think if you really hit Republicans on this, that would be something that could potentially sway voters. And that's not to say that I, I think that Democrats should be only anti-Republican because, of course, it's crucial that you have your own message. But in pointing out what they're trying to do in dismantling the Affordable Care Act's most important provision, I think that could be helpful. But what did he say he did to get the message across? Oh, he tweeted to Donald Trump about it. You've got to do more. You don't have the reach that Trump has. Going to Twitter is not enough. And if I were Chuck Schumer, I would 
be doing everything I can to bring this to Donald Trump's attention and get him to acknowledge the lawsuit where he's trying to get rid of protections for patients with pre-existing conditions. Go on every single news show and talk about this nonstop. Call on everyone in the Senate to get their constituents together to do rallies across the country protesting Trump's lawsuit. But, I mean, he, he says he, he tweeted to uh, Donald Trump, so he's done. I mean, it's just, it's absurd. And one portion of this interview, you can tell that the hosts were really trying to push him in the right direction, you know, and give him hints and guide him towards the right strategy. So when it comes to the deficit, they were asking, well, you know, is there anything here that we can do? Now, look, you have to be careful if you are going to use this strategy, because if Chuck Schumer is planning to concern troll over the deficit... I don't think that's going to resonate because someone like me personally, I just, I don't care about the deficit. That's not an issue that I care about. It's not a priority. So if he's going to try to pretend as if Democrats are going to be the party that will um, solve the deficit issue, um, and he doesn't even have to pretend. I mean, you, you do have evidence for this because Bill Clinton and Obama both shrunk the deficit. But if he's going to do that and talk about the deficit at all, I don't think it should be in that way. He should hammer Republicans for their hypocrisy on the deficit because they're the ones who always concern troll about the deficit. And now, in order to address the deficit crisis that they created, they're going to target your earned benefits that you paid into, Social Security, Medicare. So I do think that there is some strategic value in hitting them for their hypocrisy right there but by and large it's very clear to me that chuck schumer is just perhaps the most ineffectual person possible to be leader because think about this when he says something nobody even knows he said it when trump says something when he says the word mob you hear everyone senate republicans house republicans fox news all repeat the word mob when he says something it sticks and i get that donald trump is president so he can use his bully pulpit to his advantage but even when they were in the minority republicans all got on board with a cohesive message and they all used the same talking points the same rhetoric and it stuck they got media to pick up on what they were saying but when it comes to democrats they are incapable of doing the same thing. Chuck Schumer is incapable of getting people in his own caucus to come together with a cohesive message on healthcare after he admitted just how important that is. So Chuck Schumer has got to go. He is the worst possible leader at this time. Democrats need someone who's actually going to fight, not just for the people, but fight Republicans. And Chuck Schumer... He hasn't got a clue, and he is bungling the party's response to healthcare at a time when he has an opportunity to make the party unstoppable if they get on board with Medicare for All. But yet, we don't even know where the average Senate Democrat stands at a time when Americans are screaming to Democrats, we want Medicare for All, a majority of the country, 70% support Medicare for All, and Chuck Schumer is plugging his ears and closing his eyes and he's pretending to not hear them it's unbelievable i mean you you can't be this incompetent unless you try and we all know that chuck schumer is beholden to the health industry and big pharma so if they take back the house and the senate which i hope that is the case if that happens it will be in spite of chuck schumer's efforts certainly not because of it Amazing. Yeah. It's so amazing. Incredible. You like sluts? 
I'm sorry? So as you all know, our friends north of the border recently legalized marijuana. Shout out to David Dole, who is probably smoking a blunt as we speak. So, you know, this is great news. Everyone who's reasonable, who sees that this would be not just economically beneficial, but socially beneficial as well, has really been celebrating. But there's one individual on the right in America who isn't too happy about Canada's plan to legalize marijuana, specifically because he believes this could influence other countries, namely the United States, to legalize marijuana here. And that person is Jesse Lee Peterson. Now, I don't know how I've been out of the loop on this guy, but I found out about him at Politico, or Politicon, rather, and <laughs> I don't even know what to say. This is someone who is amazing, a diehard Donald Trump supporter. He constantly talks about, you know, beta males and alpha males, and he is seemingly insecure. He's always trying to reinforce this idea that he's an alpha male. So let's watch it, and then I'm going to respond to the reefer madness level of propaganda that he is going to espouse during this short clip. So the entire country of Canada is, has now legalized marijuana, pot, drugs. And they have done it for several reasons, but the primary reason is to weaken the young, to get the potheads uh, so deep in unconsciousness that they can manipulate them and use them for whatever purpose that they need. And um, I don't care what anyone says, marijuana deadens your consciousness. I know people think that they are conscious when they're high, but you're not. And then as time go by, goes by, you become dumber and dumber and dumber and weaker and weaker and weaker. And if you notice, if you notice, Young men and women today are not moving away from their parents. They are not out dealing with life and uh, building a life and building a career and making money in life and giving back to the country. They are at home at the age of 18 to, in some cases, 60 years old. They are living with their parents. And the parents are so weak that they can't force them out because they have not built that inner nature that causes you to want to leave home at 18 and develop and grow. I couldn't wait to get out of my home at 18 years old because I was prepared from day one. And I'm so grateful because it's made a man out of me. And so legalizing marijuana is not a good thing. And I don't want to hear whether alcohol is legal, right? I don't care about that. Just because alcohol is legal, that's not a reason to legalize marijuana. I know personally no friends who were on pot and they could never get over it. And they end up dying at young ages, several of them. And so this is coming to America. There's a push and it will happen if you allow liberals, Democrats, Rhino and others to run the country. It will happen in America. You're damn right it's coming to America. And much to the chagrin of people like Jesse Lee Peterson, most of us are happy about this, and for good reason. In fact, public support for marijuana legalization is now at an all-time high, with 62% of Americans now in support of full legalization as of 2018. 
And when you control for generations, you'll see that the older you are, the less likely you are to be in support of legalizing marijuana. Amazing. So, I mean, really, it's no surprise that someone in Jesse Lee Peterson's age range would have these antiquated views about marijuana. I mean, we see it all the time. Thankfully, I think that a lot of us are changing their minds, but for the most part, I mean, you saw the poll results. By and large, they're more likely to be against marijuana legalization. Now, he states that the primary reason why Canada legalized marijuana, quote, is to weaken the young and also to manipulate them and use them for whatever purpose they need. Um, so that doesn't even make sense to me, because if you're trying to manipulate the young and use them for a particular political purpose, then wouldn't you try to make sure that they drink more alcohol instead of smoke marijuana? Because when you drink alcohol, that literally could kill you if you drink enough and you don't have to drink very much to just become mentally incapacitated, right? You could get drunk, you can become belligerent, you cannot think clearly. So that would be an easier tool to manipulate someone with in the event government actually had an interest in doing that, but I don't think that that's what they're doing. It's much easier to manipulate people through the use of propaganda, Fox News and whatnot, and your show, Jesse. But what he's saying here, to weaken the young, I mean, he just, he, he pulled that out of his ass. He's making that up. Now, also, another hilarious thing he said here, he attributes young women and young men living at home at older ages to pot use. He says, quote, they're at home at the age of 18 to, in some cases, 60 years old. <laughs> if, you, if you are living at home at the age of 60, I hate to break it to you, you are no longer a young person. <laughs> Amazing. By and large, millennials are living at home until they're older. Yes, that's true, but why wouldn't you just automatically and instinctively really attribute that to economic changes and economic factors? Why wouldn't you think, okay, well, you know, when I was young, I was able to move out when I was 18, and nowadays, you know, these millennials, they're living with their parents until they're 25, 30, and the assumption is that these millennials who are living with their parents, they don't really want to move out. They like living with their parents, and it's because of pot use. It's making them lazy. Well, no. Uh, pot use has nothing to do with it. If they're living with their parents, it's because the economy changed. It's because boomers like you, when you were young, you were able to get a job at Taco Bell and buy a house, you know, have a family, put yourself through college. And nowadays, we can't do any of that because of the changing economic landscape. Government no longer subsidizes education to the extent that they did, hence why education has skyrocketed and why we all are plagued by student debt. I mean, housing costs have increased. The cost of rent is insane, but that wasn't the case when you were young. But since he just doesn't like millennials, he thinks, oh, well, it's obviously because they're lazy and they're smoking pot every day. No, that's not it. You can smoke pot and still be a productive member of society. It's just that nowadays the economy is completely different than when you were young. In fact, I smoke pot, not all the time, but relatively frequently, and I'm still a productive member of society. I smoked pot all through, you know, uh, graduate school and in the PhD program I was in. It, it doesn't make you less produ productive. In fact, I would argue personally that it makes me more productive because it helps me to relax and chill out. 
But to him, now nah, it's, you know, it's not changing economic conditions. It's specifically because these millennials are all potheads. That's why they're living at home longer with their parents. Ridiculous. Um, now, in anticipation of the counter argument, he knows that we're going to make, and I was going to make this. He says, quote, just because alcohol is legal, that's not a reason to legalize marijuana. And that's that's fine. Right. But you have to be consistent here. If you're against the legalization of marijuana, but you're also against alcohol being legal, then that's that's fine. I mean, I would vehemently disagree with that. Right. But that's fine because you're being consistent. But you don't get to say, oh, well, just because we legalized alcohol doesn't mean we should legalize marijuana. Well, why not? It's less harmful than alcohol. But he's going to he's going to get to what he thinks about just how harmful cannabis is he literally claims that he knows friends who quote could never get over pot and ended up dying at young ages i yeah (laughs) there's never been a reported case of somebody dying because they overdosed on marijuana but apparently we're all not privy to what jesse lee peterson knows people have died from marijuana and jesse peterson happens to know multiple people that have died from marijuana i mean this is just absolutely unreal now assuming that there's a kernel of truth to this story and that he did have friends that died at a young age why would it be the case that marijuana was the cause of their death in order for us to buy into this jesse you're expecting us to believe that you happen to know the only people ever in the history of humanity that died from marijuana overdoses that's what you what we have to believe in order to accept your argument you understand why this is absurd right so this is this is beyond insanity and when i was watching this i couldn't help but think that this was just indistinguishable from satire In fact, I made a satirical marijuana, quote, propaganda video a couple of years ago to kind of poke fun at a lot of the public figures and politicians who are trying to promote this myth that marijuana is a killer or it's dangerous or it makes you lazy and basically all of the propagandist assertions that we heard Jesse Lee Peterson make in this video. And I think that because it's relevant again, because we're seeing this level of insanity again, now that Canada voted to legalize marijuana, uh, I think that this old clip that i posted the channel in late 2016 it has a newfound relevance all over again so i'm gonna leave you with that and you know (laughs) i hope that uh jesse lee peterson gets to experience pot because he might actually like it and it might help him out a little bit since the dawn of time mankind has been plagued by war poverty and natural disasters but nothing can compare to the most destructive force in the world, marijuana. Legalization of marijuana for tax purposes, and, and that's the only way people justify it, because you can't justify it any other way. It's blood money. I mean, people on pot that shoot each other, that stab each other, strangle each other, drive under the influence, kill families, wipe out a whole family. Marijuana leads to doing worse things. That's just a fact. I don't care what anybody says, what the debate is. The only reason you use weed outside of a medical situation is to intoxicate yourself. But we also have anecdotal evidence now from Colorado where some of the people who were um, taking 
uh, marijuana for those purposes, um, the coroner uh, believes after they died there was drug interactions with other things they were taking. Even a single marijuana can be deadly. The liberal media hides the truth about marijuana, arguing it's safer than alcohol and cigarettes. But even just one, marijuana can tear apart families. All right, I'll, I'll get straight to the point. I found marijuana in the house. Lead to death. Or worse, cause homosexuality. Those that know the truth are laughed at. So what we have here is a case of money over morality. And, you know, right now, it's, it's really funny. Folks, we're watching the, the chuckleheads, you know, we're watching these uh, folks doing what they're doing out there and getting a good laugh about it. But when the body count starts rising, when people start dying, then maybe, yeah, yeah, it's real funny, isn't it? Real funny, real funny to talk about. Meanwhile, people are dying. This man died after taking just one marijuana. friends told him it was safe because they heard it from liberal cucks like T.J. Kirk, Secular Talk, and The Humanist Report. We must stop the marijuana epidemic now, and you can help. Share this video with your friends. It could save a life. Literally just hours after California Governor Jerry Brown signed his state's net neutrality bill into law, the Justice Department announced a lawsuit against the state in order to get that law overturned. Now, additionally, about a week later, we saw a number of tech companies, specifically their lobbyists, team up for another lawsuit against the state of California just to make sure that, you know, if that Justice Department lawsuit doesn't go their way, they have a backup plan. Now, in legal briefs, we're starting to hear what these companies are saying and why they're against California's lawsuit. So we have this headline from Ars Technica by John Brodkin that I want to read to you because I think it's absolutely hilarious. Quote, Comcast complains it will make less money under California net neutrality law. Comcast fears it won't be able to charge online platforms for interconnection. You poor things. I feel so, I feel so horrible for Comcast, don't you? <laughs> now, obviously... Um, you know, if you're a Comcast customer, then you know that they have absolutely no problem randomly raising rates, suddenly imposing data caps on your internet service. They don't care. But when it comes to them, everyone should feel bad for them because, you know, this law might inhibit their ability to make even more money from companies and consumers. I don't think any of us have any fucks to give. Sorry, Comcast. We're playing the world's tiniest violin for you right about now. But let's go ahead and get to the article itself, because there's some more details from Jod Bradkin, and he explains California's net neutrality law will cause, quote, significant lost revenues for Comcast, the nation's largest cable company, said in a court filing this month. 
Comcast described the net neutrality law's potential impact on its ability to charge online service providers and network operators for network interconnection. The paid interconnection provisions will harm Comcast's ability to enter into new, mutually beneficial interconnection agreements with edge providers that involve consideration, leading to a loss of existing and prospective interconnection partners and significant loss of revenues, Comcast Senior VP Ken Clower wrote in the filing in U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of California. Edge provider is the industry term for websites and other online platforms such as Netflix and Google. Comcast submitted its filing on October 3rd as part of the broadband industry lawsuit that seeks to overturn California's net neutrality law, which is slated to take effect on January 1st of 2019, unless the court grants a stay halting implementation. Comcast's filing is meant to support the industry's request for an injunction that would halt enforcement of the law while litigation is pending. The California law's actual impact on network interconnection deals is not clear-cut. The law explicitly prohibits blocking and throttling and bans paid prioritization in the last mile portions of broadband networks that lead directly to consumers' homes. The law also prohibits ISPs from requiring payment in exchange for delivering internet traffic to consumers, but the law applies a different standard to network interconnection, a type of traffic exchange that happens at the edge of each broadband provider's network. The law says that ISPs like Comcast may not engage in interconnection practices that have the purpose or effect of evading the prohibitions of the net neutrality law. In other words, Comcast can't block or slow down traffic at interconnection points, and it can't make paid interconnection the only viable option for reaching Comcast customers. Comcast famously courted controversy when it required Netflix to pay for interconnection. Netflix has been paying Comcast since 2014, but previously argued that interconnection should be free since Comcast customers were requiring Netflix traffic while Netflix bore the cost of building a network to deliver that traffic directly into Comcast Network. Now, before I give you my take on that, I do want to share with you some exclusive footage that the Humanist Report obtained of Comcast Senior VP Ken Clare's reaction to the passage of California's net neutrality bill. <laughs> so look, um, here's why they're specifically crying about this. Well, they had two pending interconnection deals. And so once Jerry Brown signed their state's net neutrality bill into law, well, that kind of throws those deals into jeopardy. So that's why they're saying this is going to cost me money. It's because, well, the language here in this particular bill, it doesn't even necessarily outright ban the types of deals that Comcast signed uh, with Netflix back in 2014. So if you'll recall, to give you some context here, back in 2014, all of a sudden, a lot of us noticed that Netflix had really low speeds. There was a lot of buffering, and it turned out that Comcast was, in fact, throttling bandwidth to Netflix. But in order to solve this issue, what Netflix had agreed to is a deal with Comcast where they'd pay them, and then all of a sudden, once this deal was approved, Netflix speeds for Comcast users was higher than ever. So there were two more deals pending, and now that may be thrown into question, not necessarily because, again, there's an outright ban on this, but because they claim the language in this law is vague enough to make this type of deal illegal. And it's also the case that AT&T is making the same argument 
presumably because they also had pending deals. So look, they are, I mean, this is argued in, in a lawsuit, right? So they're making the legal case, but you know, they're expecting others to be concerned with their bottom line. That's not our responsibility, okay? You're already doing what you can to rip off your own customers. I mean, there's a reason why Comcast was voted the most hated company in America multiple times. It's because your business practices are blatantly anti-consumer. Again, I don't have to tell you, if you're a Comcast customer, you already know. Random price hikes, the imposition of data caps with no warning or anything like that, just so they can charge you more. So now we're supposed to care that Comcast is going to make less money because of a law that protects consumers? No, we're all playing the world's tiniest violin for Comcast right now. And um, quite frankly, good. Fuck you, Comcast. People don't like you. Americans hate you. And the only reason why you have customers is because in a lot of communities, you have a monopoly. But the minute we get public broadband, the minute another option emerges in their communities, you lose business because we hate you. So we'll end this video by playing the tiniest violin in the world for Comcast. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the program. A special shout out to all of our listeners on iTunes and SoundCloud. And as usual, before we leave, I want to send a special thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show to not only survive, but thrive as well. If you'd also like to support the Humanist Report podcast and join the TH Army, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. I'm Mike Figueredo. I'll see you all next week. Take care.